Welcome back to the Gay 15 interview as we excitedly look to turn the page of winter and welcome spring here as I personally am very excited to head back out on the beautiful Washington Old Dominion Trail. I'm Andy and your host of this monthly discussion with experts and amazing guests from throughout our homeless security community. This is the fourth of our four Gay 15 monthly podcasts which include our risk roundtable discussion, Jen Walker's a cybersecurity evangelist and Dave Pounder's nerd out. Please subscribe and listen and learn more about the threats and risks facing us every day. This month, I'm very grateful to welcome Mr. Gary Warner, who's a pretty remarkable individual, and one who wears a lot of hats, which I can empathize with. Among his many roles, Gary serves as the Director of Research and Computer Forensics for the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the Director of Threat Intelligence for Dark Tower, a subsidiary of Queen Associates based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. I should also add, Gary is one of our founding advisory board members of the Faith-Based ISAO, an information sharing uh, community for the community of faith. Gary, I know you have a little or no time and we're recording this and I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time out to join me. So really, I can't thank you enough for making the time to talk today and to share your perspective and your experience with those that are listening. Can you just take a minute and introduce who you are to those that are listening in? Sure. Um, thanks for the opportunity, Andy. I mean, the things that you guys do are so in line with my heart for this whole community. You know, I came out of industry. I was an oil and gas guy, IT uh, work as a oil and gas guy. And while I was there, we got involved with an FBI investigation. And it actually led to uh, us starting the InfraGuard chapter in Birmingham. Oh, wow. And so um, coming out of critical infrastructure protection and looking at all of the communities that don't really fit in the box of one of those critical infrastructures, yeah. it's part of why I appreciate what you guys do so much with the faith-based ISO. It may not be critical infrastructure, but it's an important part of our communities. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's funny because you and I touched sort of a lot of areas. Right? We touched with our infrastructure work. We touched with our, our infraguard work, and and I just in, in our in our in our faith and the things we want to do to help protect those that they're seeking you know, to, to to worship and find God. And um, it's just great to have all those intersections. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so great to to do the work that we get to do. It's such a privilege. And faith is an interesting one. When I talk to folks. I often say, you know, it's not it's not critical infrastructure the same way that you know, financial services are, or that water is, you know, it's not, it's not a critical lifeline. It's not a, a vital service, but it's part of the American fabric. You know, it's weaved in everything we do and disaster recovery, incident response. I mean, you know, places of worship are the ones that are helping communities get back on their feet after something really serious happens. So in my mind, it is part of our critical environment, even if not necessarily designated critical infrastructure, just like space isn't designated critical infrastructure, right? So we're pretty, pretty dependent on the things floating around in our uh, atmosphere. So anyway, with that, with that, Let's let's yeah. let's talk about you, right? So you shared a little bit about where you came from. Anything else you want to share about who you are, what you're doing today? Yeah. So I left the oil and gas community to come to the university in 2007. So I teach at UAB, the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I tell people when they get confused, the University of Alabama, those are the football guys down the street. We do <laughs> we do cybercrime research. <laughs> uh, Actually, UAB is best known for its medical uh, facilities. We're one of the largest hospitals in America and have some amazing research going on in those areas. But it's been a great base for me. I came here because that's where I got my computer science degree back in the 80s. And what I say about our program is that we solve criminal justice problems with computer science technology. And we're really looking for how do we build people who think about the problem neither as strictly a law enforcement problem nor strictly as a technology problem, but really a merger of those two things. And yeah. sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go yeah, ahead. No. 
I was going to say one of the things I really admire about you is, is, I mean, you you really do take a, a thoughtful perspective to the work that you do, and you look beyond, you know, just you know, I'm, I'm a cybersecurity guy, or you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm I'm looking at cybercrime, and, and you take a broad look at infrastructure, and the community, and the cyber, and the physical. And I, I really appreciate that because it lines up so well with what we do at Gate 15. So, you know, thanks for the way that you you look at these things, where you frame them, and the way you share them. Yeah. So the area that I specialize in at the university, we call it computer forensics. But if you think about computer forensics, what is that? Yeah. It's evaluating digital evidence uh, originally for the courtrooms. Well, now what is digital evidence? So people are like, you're in so many different things. I'm like, no, I evaluate digital evidence. <laughs> some of that evidence is about terrorism. Some is about cybercrime. Some is about world events and politics. But it's things we found on the internet and we're evaluating them. So a lot of our students are really coming into an intelligence analysis role almost by accident. They think they're coming here to learn about cybercrime, and they certainly do, but they also learn about how do I think about problems? How do I gather, preserve, and analyze evidence so that an, a decision maker can make a better decision? You know, well, that's intelligence. Okay. We just happen to do it with digital evidence. And then... The So in addition to the bachelor's degree in digital forensics and the master's in computer security that we have here at Dark Tower, we're doing the same thing. We partner with a lot of our corporate and law enforcement and government friends to provide intelligence services using students. So at Dark Tower, we have students not only from UAB, there's certainly a lot of those, but we also have students from places that think about the problem the way I do. So some great people at Embry-Riddle University. We were just down there last, or two weeks ago, meeting with their faculty and uh, meeting a bunch of the students that work for us at Dark Tower from Embry-Riddle. And we have students from UNC Charlotte and from uh, Rutgers University, one from Purdue's cybersecurity program. You know, and the idea is we're just trying to spread that way of thinking about the problem set. You know, that's, we want to get the students involved as early in the process as they can. So I often will tell students, if you can encounter your life problem really early in your academic career, it's gonna change the way you look at every class you take from that point forward. You know, so, so many of our students, unfortunately, they're, they're being trained by somebody who got a bachelor's in computer, computer science, and then a master's in computer science, and then a PhD in computer science, and then they became a professor. And I'm like, where's, where's the part where you understand how the real world works? Yeah. And so if you're trained in that environment, you may graduate having never faced a real world problem. And what we're trying to do is just get those real world problems, whether it's partnerships with our, our colleagues at the lab or at Dark Tower, expose those students as early as we can to real world problems so that as they go through the educational process, they begin thinking, how can what I'm learning in this class apply to my problem set that I care about? And, you know, the same thing is true, whether you're, you know, biomechanical engineering or brain science or, or psychology, the earlier you can understand what the field really is about, yeah. the better your education process is going to go from there. Yeah, I, I love that. So, so full candor for those listening, we, we recently hired one of Gary's former students, Sadie Ann Jones, uh, joined our team. We're very grateful to have her be a part of what we're doing it and that background that she brings. And I love so much about what you just said in that, Gary, because I mean, oftentimes, you know, I appreciate educators at all levels, but there's really something to it when an educator 
brings real world experience versus just book learning into what they're doing because it's just it's just different. When you have to apply things that you learn in an academic environment into reality, it's it just it's just a different experience. And be able to do that um, at a young age and with those you know, those young eager minds and get them you know thinking that way early on, I think that's awesome. It brings such a great capability you know to our security environments. Really applaud what you're doing and. Um, I, I think it's awesome. I think it's awesome. I think, I think your students, uh, they probably don't fully appreciate what they're getting in that experience, but eventually I think they will. This is just very different than what others are exposed to. So thanks for all you're doing to help build the, the next generation of great minds and analysts. Before we go too far into the, the great knowledge you have, let me, let, me, let me drift for a minute here. So there's so much we can talk about and we will, but first let me, let me again, thank you for being a security champion, the leader, you know, you, you are, you're all those things and for sharing your knowledge and skills with so many through the lab, the communities, the, the universities you talked about and the work you're doing at Dark Tower and so many other ways. But well, let me start with this, right? So your bio reads, among Gary's specialties uh, are anti-spam, anti-phishing, computer forensics, cybercrime, fraud, terrorism, malware analysis, law enforcement partnerships, public-private partnerships, critical infrastructure protection, all flowing, all logical, and haiku poetry. So let me hold for a second. So as we say, as, as, as we used to sing in the army, you know, one of these things is not like the other ones. One of those is a little bit different. So what, what's the story with your, with your haiku poetry interest and expertise there? Well, uh, first, I think that song came from Sesame Street, not the army. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they may have some things in common. No, but so actually, when I was at the university, uh, as, as an undergrad, I was looking for a problem. I was interested in linguistics and computer science. And I started into this project about transformational grammars. And I was going to gather all these things and do some translation with machine learning. Mm -hmm. And um, we were looking for small language samples. And so I grabbed a bunch of haiku poetry. And I'm like, OK, now I need to find these poems in Japanese. And I found 160 different translations of one 15 onji or, you know, syllable haiku right. poem. Right. It was the most famous one of all from Matsuo Basho, you know, ya Kawazu Tobikomu Mizu no Oto. And there's 160 plus translations of that into English. You know, it's the one, you know, a frog jumps into the pond, sound of water, you know, and it's like, okay, that's been translated so many ways and it just blew my mind. And I'm like, yeah. okay, which one's right? Yeah. And, and I'm like, I'm trying to solve a problem here. And how do I know if my translation software is project is going right if I can't figure out what the right translation is? And it just, I, okay, I became obsessed. <laughs> you know, I, 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 at the time, I, I had access to the interlibrary loan at a different university I was working at. And I just started pulling in every resource I could. And as I we tried to figure out, okay, where can I learn more about this? Well, this is, you know, 90, 91, something like that. So I sent out an announcement on a, the way we used to learn about websites before we had search engines, you subscribe to this newsletter called Net Happenings. Okay. And they announced every new web server on the entire internet. Like, <laughs> hey, here are this week's new web servers. And you just kept an archive of that. And that's how you knew where the web servers were. So we announced that I was starting a, a uh, online journal of haiku poetry for people who are trying to learn about haiku poetry. Yeah. And we started this mailing list and it was so much fun. I spent, I spent wow. years studying haiku as much as I could. We hosted a monthly haiku contest and I'm getting distracted now. I could talk the whole hour about haiku <laughs> poetry, but I still appreciate the thing I appreciate about haiku poetry 
is that it causes you to be aware of the moment that you're in. Hmm. So it's, it's really a, a, about taking a snapshot of nature and deeply observing it. You know, now I'm, I'm more into bird watching, honestly, right now than haiku poetry, but that appreciation of nature is really a, a big part of it and getting away from all the technology for a little bit. Yeah, Go okay. for a walk in the woods and write down what you saw. That's awesome. <laughs> awesome. I, I'll be honest, I, I appreciate that part of, of haiku as far as you know, the focus on nature, but I definitely appreciate the idea of you know, need just to get away from from technology and the screens or anything else. Why I, I appreciate you know being able to go out and run or cycle so much, just because it just disconnects me from everything. And it's just you know breathing and and being physical and and not doing the stuff that we're doing all day long. But uh, you know, it, it, another time, another conversation. But you know, as we share the same faith, I'd love to share that same thought process with you as far as you know biblical translations and sort of pick your mind on on that in relation to the various translations oh. of the years. That, that would be a, that, that's a whole separate many hours discussion. Probably it'll take us into all sorts of crazy channels, but that's, that's probably a fun one to have. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love to do that with you sometime. Probably awesome. not for this podcast. Yeah. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably not what we're focusing on today, but that's, that's, that's maybe another, another time. So right, well, let, let's continue. So you share a little about sort of your background, a little bit about it, but we can tell us a little bit more again. Can we start with how you got to where you are and you know, really your backstory, how did young Gary, the guy, you know, looking at haikus become the security professional that we're getting to listen to and hear from today? So it really came down to, uh, again, a fascination for things that weren't really deeply understood. So I was at Samford University. Uh, that was my very first job after I graduated with my BS. And you know, we were we were on dual floppy systems with twisted pair back through protocol converters to a mainframe. That was the state of computing. Yeah. And um, we had this modem in the in the computer room, and I asked the operators, "What what is that plugged into?" And like nobody knows. And so I, they're like, "Well, how would we find out?" Like, nobody knows. So I, I unplugged it, and the phone rang like a minute later. And it's like, hey, this is Landy Manderson down at UAB. Your internet connection just dropped. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, it was BitNet, BitNet, not internet. Yeah. And I'm like, Landy, how would I find out what BitNet is? I, nobody was using it, but somebody at UAB had got a grant to connect two other universities to the <laughs> BitNet. And so we were connected, but zero people were using it. And so we plugged into BitNet and eventually to internet and there were no firewalls, no anti antivirus software barely existed, if at all, at that time. And we were just getting flooded with attacks. And, you know, people hacking under our user IDs and passwords, you know, brute forcing accounts. Yeah. I mean, back then, you remember how we used to go at default IDs? You'd get your user ID and the password would be your social security number. Yeah, great, awesome. Well, awesome. back then we're at a university. People posted grades by sticking your social security number yeah. on a list <laughs> on the right. instructor's door. You know, <laughs> um, you know. So we had a lot of problems, but uh, through that process, we we started our own internet service provider. We we provided dial-up internet to all of our students. And then launched a standalone ISP after that, um, working with my friend, John Shewitz, who I worked for at that time. We stood up a, actually is a faith-based a faith -based ISP. We had porn blocking of a sort, you know, okay, you okay. wanted the internet without the porn, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, but we learned a lot about how, how the internet worked. So, you know, we were there. I, I'm not 
I've got a great beard, but I'm not an original great beard. You know, I, I'm 10 years too late to have been at the original stuff, but, but I learned a lot about how the internet works, but I'd never really thought about it from a crime perspective until we had a hacking incident at the oil and gas company I worked with. Somebody defaced our website, not a big deal, yeah. except that the CEO thought it was a big deal. And he came down and told me that he wanted the uh, me to find the person who did it and nail his behind, he's a very nice man, <laughs> nail his behind to my door. Okay, that was my assignment from the CEO and I had no idea how to do it. Yeah, You know, so I, I called a friend of mine, a friend of a friend actually at that time, a guy named uh, Dan Clemens. Uh, Dan runs a great cybersecurity company called okay, Shadow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, you know, you know Dan. So Dan and I used to hang out all the time together back then. And I was like, Dan, I don't know how to find this guy. Can you come teach me? And really, he showed me, like, everything was on IRC back then. We got onto IRC, and he kind of coaxed, coached me through the process of finding this guy and figuring out who he was. And the, the kid apologizes to me for hacking me and, <laughs> and patches it. Like, he logs back in and fixes it. <laughs> <laughs> and we and Dan and I ended up writing it up and sending it off to Microsoft. I mean, he had a zero day for IIS. No can defense, right? Yeah. Um, but that process, we went to the FBI. We started the way I always tell the story. We went to the Birmingham police. We called the Birmingham police. Hey, I've been a victim of a hacking incident. And the guy on dispatch says, you mean like with a machete? <laughs> and... Yeah, I'm like, no, it's a computer thing. He goes, oh, we'll call the FBI. They do computer things. So we called the FBI and the FBI was like, are you a government agency? No. Are you working on a government contract? No. Are you a financial institution? No. And those were the only categories protected by federal law at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, no, Rich, you've been very helpful. Thank you. And he's like, no, I haven't been. <laughs> Rich, Rich Waller was the FBI agent that was there. And I asked Rich, how did you become a cybercrime agent? He says, well, one day the SAC came down and he said, or she said, it was Carmen Adams at the time. She said, um, hey, does anybody know about that right click and double click and everything? And Rich says, I raised my hand. And she said, good, you're the cybercrime agent. <laughs> and literally that was it, you know? And that's kind of the state of cybercrime in the late 90s. And well, this yeah. was the year 2000. It was summer of 2000. And so we went and found people who had been hacked by the same guy who were government agencies working on government contracts and were financial institutions, found 44 different organizations wow. like that, took all the evidence back to the FBI and they identified the guy and arrested him. Oh, wow. you know, and then after that, they kept calling and they're like, hey, can you come do that thing you do? And, <laughs> and so we worked out an arrangement with my employer where they loaned me to the bureau 20 hours a week, partly That's for cool. InfraGuard and partly to sit on the cybercrime desk. And so I was a I was a unofficial task force officer, but I you know I was Gary Warner at ic.fbi.gov, and I had a desk and a computer and a phone, so you know, and full access to Sentinel, which was okay. Yeah. You take a computer science data miner and give them full access to Sentinel. All right, I was like, um, okay, <laughs> so I can just look things up, and they're you know, <laughs> like yeah, go for it. And I would go in every Monday, and I would type in phishing. <laughs> and I would read every single brief on every single case that had anything to do with phishing. Yeah. And then I would start calling agents. I'm like, hey, guy in Charlotte, did you know that you're working on the same case as the guy in Chicago? Here's how you can tell. And we would do these three-way calls introducing FBI agents to each other to help them understand that they were working on the same problem. 
That's nuts. And we we started doing the same thing with malware. Back when I had a TS clearance, there's a lot of very interesting things on Intellipedia, which is kind of like Wikipedia for top secret people. And they had some great malware blogs being written by people in a classified environment. And one of the things we a value we would bring to the table is everybody like, oh, this malware attacks the military. I'm like, it also attacks kindergarten teachers, high school kids, and anyone who has an email address. You know, and so part of what our value was was letting them know whether or not something really was a targeted attack or whether it was just spray and pray. Yeah. And so we did a whole lot of that, but that was what led to, you know what, there's got to be a better way to do this. Let's go start a program to teach people how to be cybercrime investigators. That's awesome. That, that's, it's amazing. And I look back at my career and I uh, hope I still got a long way to go, but you know, you, you sort of stumble into things at times, you know, you start doing something or you talk to somebody, things come together to, to uh, you know, again, you know, this is, this is a, a different discussion, but you know, you, sometimes that passage is very interesting to see unfold because you don't plan it, not what you're expecting to do, but, uh, but it comes out that way. And you, you might not be a uh, internet plank holder, but you're certainly, you know, one, one of those that, that, that has been around for a long time doing this with a great perspective and experience. And uh, there's, there's something to be appreciated about the sort of the time we're in when the resources like you and others are still around and available and sharing so much of your knowledge. And I love that you're contributing so much to the higher education community because you're just, you're trying to multiply Gary Warner's, you know, and that's, that's awesome. I, I love, I love it. So thank, thanks for all that you've done over the years. A lot, there's probably so many stories to, to enjoy, you know, what you, what you shared, but let, let's, let's come back to sort of, you know, from there. So, you know, you've got this great background, this, this, this awesome transition and starting to collaborate through InfraGuard, working with the FBI early on, early private public partnerships. I think we're still trying to, you know, fumble our way through here in 2022. But, but, but here you are now. So, so now you're working with, uh, with your teaching and, and with Dark Tower. So can you share a little bit about um, you know, what you're doing there? And with that, can you explain a little bit about the idea of social media intelligence? You touched on computer forensics already. Can you go a little bit more into that? I think it's a fascinating area and often people really don't understand what that means as you sort of spoke to earlier. So just a better understanding of what you're doing at UAB and Dark Tower now and, and what that's really all about. Yeah, so we, we started the... Um... We had been focused in the lab really heavily on malware and phishing. Um, I ran a project that was called the Spam Data Mine, and we had a, a phishing intelligence system. And we spun out a company previously. It was called Malcovery Security. Got bought by FishMe, which later became CoFence. Okay, and yeah. I, I love the people at CoFence. I still greatly admire what they do. Um, but all of that early spam malware stuff was all about indicators of compromise, IOCs. Yep. And we, we actually did an interesting project with the Carnegie Mellon CERT folks. Uh, Jonathan Springo was, or John O. Spring was the guy who ran the project. We were like, all of this IOC list stuff is a little bit BS. And he acquired as many commercial IOC feeds as he could and looked at what the overlap between them was. Yeah. And I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it was a single digit percentage overlap like the greatest overlap between any two commercial IOC feeds was a single digit number. Um, let's say 8%, you can go look it up. He published the paper, right? Um, but his conclusion was buy as many as you can afford. They all have value, buy as many as you can. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people, that was the way they defended their network was, yeah. oh, we'll ingest all of these IOCs into Splunk or HP ArcSight or IBM's 
Oh gosh, <laughs> I'm trying to blank. Uh, but whatever your SIM was going to be, your, yeah. your security intelligence event manager, suck in as many Intel feeds as you can, match them against your logs, yay. And it works. But what I mean, that's our, still what a lot of people are doing today, right? That's still yeah, it, it works. It's it's an absolutely critical part to defending your network. However, uh, criminals are the ones who are attacking your network in many cases. And wouldn't it be better to understand what the criminals are doing? And our objective was, what if we could go find the places they're having those conversations, gather the conversations, figure out who, who's who's, who within that community is what, I, I use the acronym TAI. Are they timely, authentic, and influential? That's who I want to go after. I don't want to know about every single ankle biter fisher on the planet. I would like to know about the people doing fishing that are timely, authentic, and influential. Timely, they're currently talking about it. It's not eight-year-old posts or even eight-month-old posts. It's today's posts. Authentic, they seem to be very focused on whatever our target category is, whether that's check fraud or, or, or uh, you know, phishing or, or terrorism. And then influential, people who people often will look at who posted the most things. I want to know of the people who post a lot of things, who's who listens to them. Yeah, who cares? Right. And so what we're working on is how do I figure out within this community of people committing fraud, which is one of our big focus areas at Dark Tower, or any category at, at the university, we're in many different areas. So Again, we do we do opioid investigations. You know, we're we're a big player in the opioid epidemic. Um, we're working on terrorism. We're working on a lot of different categories of badness, of human trafficking. Who are the leaders there? That if I were to take them out, things start falling apart. Mm-hmm. And there there used to be this course taught at the Naval Post Grad School. I haven't taken the course, but I've read their textbook. It was called the uh, Disrupting Dark Networks. And it was written in a terror era, you know, the war on terror stuff. Um, It was, gosh, there's 800 people involved in this terrorist activity. If I could only take out five people and make the whole thing apart, fall apart, which five are they? And so a lot of it is who are the ringleaders, the most influential people in that community? And there's, we can either look for ways to target them and eliminate them whatever your form of elimination is handcuffs are my favorite but there's lots of depending on your on your resources and and uh worldview you may have other ways of elimination but the the idea is can i disrupt the network by studying and learning who's the most influential or can i learn from that most influential person to learn how they're doing the attacks so that i can help my clients build a better countermeasure for it so if I were going to engage with one of these criminals, which one would I learn the most from? Okay, how do I get into his community of trust in a way that will allow me to engage him and learn exactly how does he do this fraud against one of my friends? And then can I take what I've learned and share that with the community and say, does that look like it would work for you? And sometimes they're like, oh, that used to work, but it doesn't work anymore. And sometimes they say, oh, (laughs) Yeah, that really explains things. And there's, there's, 
so many times that it leads to one of those aha moments where people are now scurrying around at the at the partner industry uh, finding ways to change their policies and procedures to stop that type of fraud from being effective. And again, you know, sometimes that leads to a targeting package where somebody's going to arrest or eliminate that target. Other times it's going to just be now that we know exactly how they're committing that fraud, we can put an effective countermeasure in place. Um, it's something we used to go through all the time in the fishing world was I don't, I may not be able to eliminate the fisher, but if I can make it more expensive to do fraud against me than my competitors, then I've still, I've won with regards to me and my customers. It's the slowest gazelle approach, right? I just want to be the slowest gazelle out there. Exactly. So that, that really has been our focus is how do we build the tools to collect and automate the collection and analysis of that data so we can find those TAI players, the ones that are timely, authentic, and influential, and either find ways to identify their weaknesses and eliminate them or find ways to learn from them so that we can put in effective countermeasures to move the fraud onto a different victim or possibly destroy that fraud sector-wide. I, I love going to the information sharing community, like uh, as an example, the, the American Bankers Association has a fabulous anti-fraud community. And I love being able to go to that community and sharing what I know, where, you know, because our objective is make the crime stop. Yeah. I don't want to just do it for my particular paying client, although I love them all. <laughs> big, big, big thank you to you all. Uh, you're feeding a lot of great students. But let's get this knowledge that we have out where it can do the most good for the biggest community. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much goodness of what you said. Again, there's a million ways you could go with all that. But I mean, whether you're talking about you know, high value targets in terrorism and, and observing their conversations and again, identifying who do, who do we eliminate and who do we learn from, right? Who do we want to get intel from and, and continue with? And, and then who do we need to take out? And, or if it's in the world of cybercrime, it, it applies to what our government agencies and military organizations are doing. But it also you know, comes back to that I think people are still trying to understand you know, organizationally I started thinking about, okay, do I need cyber threat intelligence of some kind? You know, we've had friends on this podcast from Advanced Intelligence, from uh, Mark Arena, from Intel 471. And, you know, the capabilities organizations like that bring, you know, along with the expertise that you're bringing, it, it's, it's people in a chance to sort of peek into these communities, not necessarily knowing what, what applies, but getting that, that, that ability to look in and then find out, oh, this, this could be a big problem for me. And then they'll take action to either protect or mitigate or whatever it is that we need to do to protect our organization. And more and more, I think it's important, not just for our you know, law enforcement partners and our military partners, but really for private sector organizations, especially our big you know, critical infrastructure owners and operators to, to get that perspective ahead of time because the adversary is doing a lot. The more we can understand that before they attack, you know, the better we are to, to protect ourselves and, and be able to you know, properly defend our organization, our people, our places, our data and our dollars. And that's, that's so important. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. You, you, you do so much and along with all that you do, I mean, you contribute a lot through the, you know, the forums that you, you, you share with, through the professional work that you do. You also, I think, provide some training, right? So is that training that is publicly available or is that only for your students? How does that work? Yeah, so uh, we do have webinars uh, that we offer through Dark Tower from time to time. I am heavily involved in law enforcement training. You know, we've done training at Interpol and, you know, the... Uh, Santiago Chile uh, Police Academy, where they brought in people from all different countries. Um, uh, some of that's been through Team Cymru. Uh, Team Cymru has an 
excellent program called RISE, where they go to other parts of the world and bring experts from the US to train law enforcement in those areas. Um, so still love doing law enforcement training. One of the things we often talk about is if the criminals are in a different country, the best thing we can do is not to try to eliminate them or identify them ourselves, but to train the people who live in that country, how can they do that better? So I, I do a lot of law enforcement training, a little bit of industry training, but it's mostly just at conferences. Um, we, we uh, you know, my, my primary training mission is still at the university, you know, uh, sign up for a class and, and come get a degree. But, uh, you know, I teach computer forensics, which is a lot about the, the legal aspects I teach investigating online crime, which is more IP addresses and domain names and th that sort of things. Um, and then, um, you know, I, I teach malware analysis and um, then uh, digital media forensics. So those are the courses I teach at the university. But we do a lot of training for, again, primarily for law enforcement. Um, I think that's that's the place that needs it the most, maybe. Um, and they are closer to the pointy end of the spear. They have a better chance of doing something meaningful with the training than most. Yeah, it's, it, and it's hard being law enforcement because I, mean, I think I think that it's changing more and more now. Um, I was talking to some some analysts from from FBI uh, headquarters you know, yesterday, and I think I think the environment's changing. But you know, so often over the last you know, thirty years, agents like you said, you know, sort of like, hey, you're the person, you're, you're the woman, you're the guy's going to have this new job. You're now our, our, our cybercrime person. And they're walking into that role with with no real experience or, or, or training. So it's not that way anymore as much. But you still find leaders that are put in those key roles that it's not really their background, whether that's at you know the FBI or Homeland Security or your other departments and agencies. It's tough because there's there's this turnover in government. And so being able to provide that training and get them educated and help them be better at their job, that's that's helping our nation, that's helping our national security. That's that's awesome work. I do want to come back to that. The story I told about the unqualified FBI agent. That has absolutely changed. That yeah. was that was the year 2000, 22 yeah. years ago, and they've come a long way. And I, I still, I will always call the FBI my home team. Uh, I have great admiration for our FBI friends. Uh, we also work with Secret Service and Homeland Security and ICE and a lot of other agencies. But, but you know, I've got a special place in my heart for the FBI. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, you know, I get caught in conversations a lot, just, you know, different things that I you know, personally believe and positions I take. And I find myself often explaining, you know, or defending our government partners, right? And, and oftentimes, it's easy to be critical of the FBI has picked on a lot, for example. And I try to explain to people that when you're a defender, you know, when you're in law enforcement, you just look at the world very differently, you know, and, and so you have a responsibility, you have a charge that really, in many cases, becomes who you are, it's how you define yourself. And so, yeah. You know, we have these arguments sometimes about civil liberties or encryption, and you know, I've, I've got strong opinions on those things, but you have to sort of be able to, to pause and understand where is this person coming from and how do we have a, a, you know, a respectful conversation or try and find that proper balance between, you know, privacy and, and law enforcement and what I can ask when I can. And it's hard. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult discussion, but our law enforcement friends often get disparaged and really they're, they're trying to keep us all safe, right? And they make mistakes like anybody does, but I, I'm 100% with you. You know, they're out there putting their necks on the line every day. And I have great respect for the FBI as well as our federal partners and state and local partners that are you know, working really hard to secure our nation. So I appreciate that you're a champion you know, for, for them and, and helping them get better at their jobs and, and professionally. So, so let, let's continue a little bit. I mean, with all that you do, um, you know, I said that you wear a lot of hats and you certainly do. Some of those are you know, the work you've done with InfraGuard, which is a lot about information sharing with the critical infrastructure and other communities. With the Electricity ISAC, where you've helped uh, faith-based ISAC. Can you talk a little bit about 
those information sharing communities and why sort of that activity, that idea of information sharing, term which is used a lot, right? A lot of times, you know, information sharing and IOCs sort of talked about disparagingly, but but it's more than that. Can you talk about why those communities are important to you? Yeah, I think that we, we used to have this saying all the way back in the 80s, malware analysis is a team sport. Yeah. And and what what I mean by that is that each of us has a different experience, possibly with the same malware. And if we keep all of our experiences and all of our information private, you'll never be able to solve the case. And so many times we were able to see that firsthand involvement in huge botnet cases, at least a dozen named malware investigations, and it, none of them could have been solved without industry support. And I, I sometimes will tell the story, it would be like if we had four different agencies that all went to a crime scene and they said, well, I'm gonna take all the evidence that's red and somebody else says, I'm gonna take all the evidence that's blue and somebody else says, well, I, I've got yellow and I've got green. They pile up their, they parse out the evidence and they all go back to their agencies and never talk to each other. Yeah. And unfortunately that's what happens. You know, I, I work at a huge university, we get attacked. We, we every day have inbound cyber attacks. If we don't share what we've learned from those things, and I'm, I'm so happy to work here where we do have a very great information sharing mindset to those problem sets. If I don't share what I've learned with the community, it's almost like I'm withholding information that could protect yeah. you. Um, a lot of our industry partners have varying levels of budget and training. Some of them have people where they're like, I don't know a single person in your entire IT security staff that I would trust to walk my dog. And some of them have fabulous training and a culture of continuous learning. And the best thing we can do for that company that isn't ready to protect themselves is share information with them and help them understand not just here's data, but how would you put that data into a useful scenario that could protect your company better? Because an industry computer that is not protected is a weapons platform for the enemy. Yep. You know, if you think back to that, uh, uh, the, the zero day on Microsoft Exchange recently, where you know, the zero day came out in December, by January, it was fully weaponized and deployed. And by the time the first news came out about it, you were seeing people in industry saying, there is a 100% chance if you have a Microsoft Exchange server exposed to the internet, it was exploited by the Chinese during the last week of January, 2021. Yeah. And still there were tens of thousands of unpatched servers. And the FBI took the unprecedented step or only a couple of precedents down in Texas, they went to court, got an order, said, hey, uh, we're going to intrude on all of those exchange servers and remove the Chinese backdoor that we know is on them. And they got a court order to do that. And people are like, isn't that horrible? The FBI getting on your servers. And the, the way I talked about it, I said, all right, I'm walking through a park and I see a playground and there's some children there and there's a loaded shotgun leaning against the tree. I don't care whose shotgun it is. I don't care whose children it is. I'm gonna take that shotgun and disable it and get it to a place where it can't harm those children. I don't care whose kids they are. That's a dangerous situation. Yeah. And that's unfortunately the situation we're in when a company doesn't know enough to defend itself. Well, its servers become attack platforms 
for exfiltration of data to China, for launching of attacks against other companies. And we're all on the same internet together. And if we don't share information, it's like we're, we're, we're inviting the enemy to come into our country and plant their attack tools and exfiltration points in our network. It's our network, yours and mine, Andy, and all of our friends. We all share one network and we have to do everything we can to protect the whole network. And if that means I have to teach somebody who can't afford the training at their own shop, great, let's, let's teach them. Let's train them, let's share everything we can so they can protect themselves better. And it gets worse if that unprotected facility happens to write code. You know, all these supply chain attacks coming out where somebody's intruded into the code writing process right. and now they're pushing malicious code out to the rest of us. You know, it's the same thing. Information sharing is the fix to that. And I have to say, CISA, I know you love CISA as much as I do. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's a new era of information sharing in the government. Yeah. You know, I mean, starting with Chris Krebs and his incredible leadership in that area, and then continuing with Jen, it's just fabulous. The things that they're doing, they're sharing more data more openly than any time in history. And there's so many resources there that people still aren't taking great advantage of. Now, one of the best things, I, I, I almost end every presentation now with, have you been to CISA's website? Here are the four areas of their website that you must assign someone to monitor these four places yeah. because they're trying to protect our whole country and you're not listening. <laughs> yeah, I, I know my, my teammate, uh, Jen, Jen Walker, we were just uh, recording our Risk Grandfell podcast and she's such a fan and advocate of CISA's uh, known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, right? I mean, Absolutely. Hundreds upon hundreds of, in some cases, 20 year old vulnerabilities that the, the enemy is actively, you know, taking advantage of, and they're still sitting out there, you know, for the pickings. And it's just, uh, it, it, it's frustrating, but what a great product and service that is to, to share that and update. I think 15 came out just uh, yesterday, 15 more. And so you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great quote and, and I appreciate the credit to uh, Chris Krebs and Jenny Shirley, who really have just done so much to advance that mission. And, and it's a mission that's very new and many just don't even understand the, the level of effort that goes into trying to figure out how to do that safely and securely enhance that information sharing environment. So, you know, some, some really great points all, all over there. And, I, and thank you for you know, championing the information sharing effort. I think it's, it, it's often disparaged and it's often misunderstood, just like our friends at the FBI often are, but there, there's, there's really a criticality to doing it and doing it right and doing it well, and we can always do it better, but, but trying to figure out how to do that is part of the, part of the challenge. And, you know, I, I get a chance to be a part of that you know, on a daily basis. I know, you know, you do as well. So, so thanks for that. So, so let, let, let's I, I, I would encourage, by the way, one thing there, sure. uh, go to LinkedIn, if you're on LinkedIn and go find Jen Easterly's page and read the about her bio on LinkedIn will help you understand what a superbly qualified person this is to lead our greatest defensive agency with regards to cyber. Um, she really does have a amazing background and her leadership of CISA has been everything I could dream of. Um, and I would really encourage people to find out who she is and how they how they can take advantage of the things she's offering you. That, that's awesome. And she has, you know, besides all that she's done and all that she's doing, she's also done a great job communicating. I was on a call earlier today with you know, one of her staff and, and, and commented that, you know, Jenny's really CISA uh, Twitter handle is, is a great one to follow. And she really is um, putting information out there fast and continuously promoting what CISA is doing, but also just sort of 
what, what she's doing and how she's trying to advocate for effective information sharing, securing our environment in a lot of ways. So we'll include, we'll include links to, to both of those uh, for, for quick reference in the show notes here in the blog post that'll accompany this podcast. But you're absolutely right. And I appreciate that encouragement. And, and we thank our public sector partners. It's, it's not easy. You know, in, in a highly politicized environment, it's never easy to step into that role, especially in a, an appointee position. But I think we've had some great folks so far. As often said, I think Chris Krebs was the right guy at the right time to take uh, what was a clunky car at NPPD and help it move into what is CISA now. And, and, and Jenny, I think, is a great you know, leader today to, to help continue that mission, help define what the organization is going to be because it moves into the future. And it's, it's an exciting mission for her and the organization. And, um, and it's going to be exciting to see where it goes in the years ahead. So. I appreciate that. I also appreciate her affinity for ACDC and then her initial attempt to name the JCD, the ACDC. So that's a, that's a whole separate discussion as well. So there's all sorts of things we can have follow on conversation about. But let's talk about um, sort of your perspective, little Gary. So I know, you know, we talk about cybercrime and your broader, you know, looking at, at security issues and threats and geopolitical situations like we're seeing unfold right now, you know, in and around Ukraine, unfortunately. Human acts of violence, and, and I recall us talking uh, during an attack on a synagogue in Germany you know, a few years ago as that was unfolding. I think I was racing between airports trying to keep uh, keep up with your, your information sharing and what was going on in that incident. So as, as you look around the world of threats and risks today, and it's, uh, it's broad and diverse and complicated, what are some of the things that have you most intrigued right now? And if I'm listening and I've got security responsibilities from my organization and I'm listening to you share today, what are some of the areas you think I should be thinking about and maybe prioritizing as I try and secure my environment? I, I have been reading, in addition to my science fiction, of course, I've been reading Russian military thought and Chinese military thought as much as I can get my hands on. Um, I've been asked by several of our clients, what are the cyber threats I should be most worried about coming out from Russia and repercussions to these uh, sanctions? And I've always been a bit of a Chinese follower. Um, you know, I've been, I've been a Chinese hacker. <laughs> um, uh, we, we were in all of their forums back in the you know, turn of the century, um, learning what they were doing, you know, exactly yeah. as we talked about earlier. Um, well, with a more formal open communication, now we have a lot of publications from the Chinese military themselves being put into English. Same with our Russian uh, counterparts. You know, they're, they're, it's not, oh my gosh, we have no idea what they'll do. It's, there are thousands of written pages explaining what they're most likely to do just like you can go read TRADOC documents and learn how the army is most likely to respond to things. Yep. All of those same documents exist in Russia and all of those same documents ex exist in China. If you can read them in the originals, do so. If you can't, find great translations and there's great translations available. So when I'm looking at China, you know, I spent a lot of time going through the, uh, the 14th five-year plan and looking at what are the new objectives of the Chinese government. The China, and again, I'm not anti-China, I'm not anti-Chinese, but I am absolutely anti-Chinese Communist Party. And the Chinese Communist Party wants to steal every single thing we have. Um, if you can start to think about the fact that in China and in Russia, there's this concept of total war. Um, in, in China, the famous book that was published was called Unrestricted Warfare. And in, the, in Russia, they talk about hybrid warfare, 
and new technology or, or uh, next technology warfare, the idea is you're always engaged with your adversary. It's the, there's a chapter in, in the Unrestricted Warfare book by the two Chinese colonels came out in like 1999, I think, is right after the first Gulf War. They, they're talking about, um, there's a chapter that's called the, uh, the face of the war god is indistinct, mm -hmm. as the literal translation. What's talk, they're talking about is for, oh, 6,000 years or so, a bunch of guys and their weapons would go meet a bunch of other guys and their weapons on a field of battle and we'd have a war. Yeah, and they're like the Chinese, the war gods would not recognize what we do today as warfare, but it's this idea that we are always engaged with the adversary, and that war includes econo economics, it includes ideology, it includes diplomacy, it includes information operations, and all of that is part of warfare. When people are like, oh, we dare not violate the no-fly zone, or if we made a no-fly zone, we'd be at war. I'm sorry, we're already at war. If you think like a Russian military person, if you level, levy sanctions against me, that is an economic act of war. And in Russia's military thinking, we are at war. And they said that. And they, that's exactly what they said, right? Exactly. And, and so us dancing along this imaginary line that says we wouldn't be at war if we avoid sending them if we as long as we don't make a no-fly zone we're not at war um no we're already at war in fact we've been at war with russia for at least 20 years and we fail to recognize it people are like what what do you think the sanctions would be okay what were the sanctions what would the sanctions response be we already know i, I mean why did russia attack the U.S. presidential election and the German parliamentary elections and go after both Angela Merkel and, and Hillary Clinton's parties because of the Crimea sanctions. Yeah. The sanctions we put in place against Russia and Putin and his, ad, his oligarchs in 2014, the direct result of that was we need to eliminate those people who made the sanctions decisions against us. And we're going to use cyber espionage and cyber influence to do that. And it worked. Okay, we're not going to see it that way now, but we know that Russia divides cyber response into information technological warfare and information psychological warfare. And what we are seeing is going to be more towards psychological. How do we cause the people of the adversary's country to be so upset at their leadership that they demand we change our stance towards Russia? That's, that's what the game is gonna look like. And it's already looking like that. And we're failing to recognize that we are in an active war with Russia right now. Yeah, it's, it's really I'm spending a lot of time studying that. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great point, it's a great perspective. And it's, it's just really hard, you know, I mean, again, it, it, there's so many things you're talking about that like maybe we could try a discussion just on this topic, but you know, with, with just the, the, the ability that Russia and China have to, you know, they know they're going to be in place for a long time. They're, they're leaving place. So they take a long view to what they're doing, right? They can, they can think about how they're going to employ tactics over years, where just by nature of our election cycle, we're just much faster, less appreciative of those long timelines. And, and we don't always take the time to think through how, how you can think as a, you know, as a governor of Russia, governor of China, taking a five, 10, 15 year perspective to achieving the results you want, because we're looking at elections, you know, 18 months from now, and, and you know, maybe four years from now. But it's it's just a different 
way of looking at the problems. And, and it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for us as a country to have continuity, to think through these complex challenges. How do we defend? How do we protect? How do we manage information operations? You know, I still remember being a young artillery officer in, in uh, Kosovo. I was assigned to lead a scout unit. And uh, we're doing some really wild missions and, and really fun stuff. And we're talking to a division artillery commander explained to me the idea of information operations. And this was something new at the time. And artillery was being assigned it because, hey, we do targeting. So we're going to do IO. <laughs> I try to wrap my head around it, right? But, but it was, it's, it's, we're just in a different place now than we were back then. But we still don't always have that long perspective that you know, we see from Russia and China. And, and there's, there's a lot to think about. So I appreciate you're sharing some of the things you're looking at and some things you're, you're thinking about, some of those references, you know, like unrestricted warfare and next technology warfare. I think there's a lot for folks to dig into there. And uh, to try and understand the the adversary, right? Maybe we think about ourselves as a, as a state of war, or just in a you know a, a, a battle of, of of you know competing economies. However, people want to frame that to, to feel comfortable with it. You know, understanding your your comp competition, your adversary is is important. And I think uh, yes, it's a really great point. So look, I'm, I'm taking you longer than than I should. So let me let me let me move to another section yet. So you mentioned some of the things you like to read, some of these like to understand. You're a smart guy, and I find the smartest guys often have the best go-to resources. Are there any favorite places you point listeners to for security and threat awareness? Any particular websites or Twitter accounts or anything that you sort of have as Gary go-tos? Well, um, I build Twitter lists around different topics. So I care deeply about crime and fraud. One of the things that I do for keeping my eyes on that, I actually have a Twitter list of every U.S. attorney's office in the United mm -hmm. States. So you don't have to follow all these U.S. attorneys, but if you want to check in on what's going on in crime this week, you bring up that Twitter list and here's everybody who's been arrested or charged federally in the last week. You know, um, I do the same thing for malware. I have a, a, a list called Malware Masters that are people who are great malware analysts. I have a phishing list that the people who tweet the most in, most valuable intel I have about phishing Honestly, when I when my young analysts come to me and they're like, how can I learn more about phishing? I'm like, follow this Twitter list. Yeah. And so I, I kind of sort, I, I've got one going right now for Ukraine. I think you know that. <laughs> but, yep. but, but that's honestly, a lot of it is that. But then when they tweet, that's the seed you need to dive in on. So somebody from a fabulous company like uh, one of my favorites, you mentioned a few of yours, is Unit 42 at Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love those guys. Uh, Talos at Cisco. You know, the Talos Intel guys are fabulous. Um, and if, as I see their things in the tweet feed, I don't just hit retweet or like, I go read the full article. And, you know, the more you read, the more you know. Funny how that works. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but that's honestly, I put, I, I actually have one called Cybersecurity Journalist too. I, the, the best resources I have, I've dropped them all into Twitter. Twitter feeds for the most part. Um, you know, obviously Brian Krebs is a cybersecurity hero of mine. Um, Krebs on security is the first place to look for new things. Uh, Graham Cluley has a great uh, place like that as well. Love Graham. And, uh, but then the, the other one that I've already mentioned, and I'll get you those four links that I always recommend to people is the resources that are available at CISA every week, today's vulnerabilities. I don't know if you saw the report from this morning, um, here's exactly how the Russians are using Duo's multi-factor authentication yeah. to reattach to old accounts and get under your domain. And, you know, that, that great level of information sharing, it's like, we use Duo here. I'm sent it immediately to my CISO. I'm like, 
are we vulnerable to this? And he explained to me why we're not, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, it's important that people are keeping somebody in your organization has to be watching at least those four CISA feeds, if not everything I just mentioned, you know. Yeah, I know that that's great. And yeah, I mean, I, I'll, uh, I'll share the link to your, your list of lists. <laughs> you know, you've got that extensive one and then there, there's a lot in there. And, uh, you know, it's great when there's champions like you who you make information available for others to sort of take enjoy and and figure out how to maybe improve upon or, or, or build on and secure their environment and learn from. So appreciate your, you know, your, your work there. And we'll definitely share that. And I need to take closer looks into that myself. It might save me a little bit of time as I go through my my daily business too. So I appreciate that, Gary. We'll, we'll share all that, anything else you want to send over. Um, but really, Gary, Gary does an amazing job of identifying useful, you know, collection points. You know, that's, it, in the work that, you know, that we do at Gay15, we consume a lot of information. So finding ways to do that faster is, is always, you know, welcome relief because there's just so much information out there. I mean, we still, we still pride ourselves a lot on that human analysis part, right? Automation is great. Computers are great, but you need a brain to really think through what in the world am I looking at here? And, and so that takes time. And so having a you know, good collected process for, for the collection process, part of your Intel cycle is invaluable. And I think you should run the Intel cycle earlier today, as a matter of fact. And so it's, uh, appreciate that. We'll share the list. We'll share some other references that Gary made. So let's, let's move one more time before we wrap things up here. So easier questions, right? You know, mental health is a topic we'll talk about all the time. And with all the stress of the work that you do, digging into cybercrime, leading efforts at UAB, thinking about all the bad things that people are trying to do around us, training and mentoring and all the active information sharing that you do. How do you stay sane, Gary? Are you a, are you a runner or is it, the, is it the haikus or you mentioned bird watching? How do you, how do you find calm in the craziness that's constantly swirling all around us? Yeah, uh, I was a runner, um, messed up my knees again, but I around age 50, I ran my first marathon the week before oh, wow. I turned 50 and ran a bunch of halves and a few fulls and then blew my knees out because I was running heavy. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope to lose weight and go back to running, but my pandemic hobby uh, turned out to be bird watching. Yeah. And now I go bird watching at least six or seven times a week. Like every morning I'm up before dawn, I, I like pick, where do I want to be when the sun comes up so I can watch some birds for an hour or so That's before awesome. I head into the office That's and, awesome. you know, okay, it's competitive birding, right? You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta be number one, you know, but no, it's <laughs> my students tease me. They say, oh, it's like Pokemon for old people. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I'm on eBird obsessing over, oh, somebody just saw a rare bird three counties over, I could get there and be back by nine o'clock. <laughs> I, I think that's great. I think it's great. But I, I absolutely love it. I love learning about nature, as I mentioned, with the haiku poetry. And that's that's how I'm keeping my sanity time right now. I don't answer phones or look at anything. I, I spend some time with my birds and then I go to work. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Animals are great. I've got a, a colleague, Robbie Endow, who's been on our podcast a couple of times. He's helped us a lot with some of the early days of faith-based ISAO as well. And He's, a, he's an avid uh, bird washer and takes these remarkable pictures he shares on Instagram. And I, 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 can take, I can't take any pictures that come out looking the way I want them to look, you know, even with all the technology on our phones today. And he's captures these birds flying around. It's just like, it's just, they're beautiful and amazing photos. It's, 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 a, it's a great hobby. And like I said, just getting out there into nature and enjoying the peace of that. And uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. So, so there you go. If you're listening, you need a way to find some disconnect from the craziness that's around us and the the Twitter frenzies and the you know cable news frenzies, 
maybe go out there and join Gary and uh, some some exciting bird watching activities. So let's let let's let's stay a little bit more about who Gary is, right? So we'll pivot away from the security discussion, the bird watching. I'm going to ask you three goofy questions, and your 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 goal, Gary, is just sort of not think and just just answer. So is that is that all right with you? You feel okay about that? That's why I agreed to do this. I wanted to play three questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's do it. So, so you're living in, in the great state of Alabama, the Yellowhammer State, where, as you mentioned earlier, college football national championships are expected every single year. And all my life, you know, I love live music. I love going out to concerts. And inevitably, at seemingly every concert, there's always someone calling for the band to play Freebird, right? So Freebird, Sweet Home Alabama, those are others. Do you have a favorite song? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I listen to a mix of um, Christian music and electronic dance music. Yeah. Uh, uh, so most of your listeners wouldn't have heard either side of that. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I really like uh, my psychedelic Goa trance music a lot. Um, uh, favorite song i i would probably go with uh something from the talking heads probably nice. uh as far as something that could be recognized uh not sure the stop making sense album was one of my favorites i jammed that a lot on the weekends you know, i'll have to go back and listen because i'm pretty sure that last month i was talking to uh joe marks at the washington post he writes the cybersecurity 202 great great reference there but um i want to say he he talked about talking heads as well i'll have to go back and, and, and listen to that and make sure but that's an interesting sort of follow there, but I, I think I asked him if you go to any, any concert anytime or any show anytime, what would you want to say? I think that was. Oh, uh, he must have poisoned me. I, I listened Maybe. to that podcast, <laughs> but, but <laughs> no, I, was. Was. I saw so, I saw the Talking Heads in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the eighties. So uh, yeah, influence. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I appreciate the diversity of the music flavors there. I I listen to a wide range of, of music. Often, to my embarrassment, people hear me singing along as I've talked about before, but that, that, you know, that's great. And I have, I have a teammate um, who used to be with us at Day 15. He's doing some other things now. He leads a small church in Florida. And he he used to, he loved worship music. He said he couldn't listen to it during the workday because he would get so distracted by the message and yep. like he'd just get totally off course. So he, he put on, you know, Taylor Swift or something that he could just sort of like listen to and and not think about. And, and that was his. Yeah, uh, I need I need no lyrics during the day while I'm trying to work. I mean, yeah. I need a bumping you know, 180 BPM and no lyrics because lyrics are distracting. But my wife and I actually are big Hillsong groupies. Yep. Uh, a bunch of my vacations have been to take my wife to a Hillsong concert somewhere. <laughs> and uh, we, we travel all over the place too. In fact, we're going to a Hillsong concert next month. So, oh, awesome. yeah. Too easy to sing along with those songs, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, well, let's learn a little bit more, right? So if you You've obviously been involved in security work your, 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 your whole career here. You've done amazing things, been a part of amazing things. If you weren't doing security-focused work you're doing today, any job in the world, what would you want to be doing? So I used to bring baked goods into the office a lot. And when I made my world-famous sugar cookies, um, I would write on them J-I-C and I frosted. And uh, people would be like, J-I-C, oh, you're Christian. Is that Jesus Christ? What is the I? I'm like, no, this is just in case. If this computer thing doesn't work out, I am a great baker. <laughs> and 
I think it would be fun to bake. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. I, I stink at it, but, but I love to do I love to cook too, but I'm not very good at that either. But but my family allows me to try and feed them a couple of times a week. I was thinking the joint intelligence center. I was like, where's he going with a jick? Here? <laughs> That's great. So all right, well, maybe maybe one day we'll uh, we'll get to see you, you know, with Gary's bakery shop on the corner down somewhere in uh in Birmingham and uh, and come enjoy your baked goods. But our last one, so Gary, this this can be a sensitive uh question and is a matter of great debate and disagreement. So I don't want to get you fired up, but cucumbers and tomatoes, are they fruits or vegetables? Well, tomatoes are fruit. That's just science. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea whether cucumbers are fruit or vegetable. I would call a cucumber a vegetable and a tomato a fruit. Okay, there, there, there's a fair answer. I think, I think botanically speaking, I think they're both considered fruits. I think, uh, you know, really? I think so because there, there's criteria that, I'm not smart enough to remember, but I think they both technically qualify. We'll, we'll, I'll look that up and try and find a good answer to, to include that's, our notes here. But that's important. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, 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 it's a contentious issue. I mean, it comes up and people get very, you know, they take it very personally on which side of the great debate they, they fall on. So, hey, we, we've hit a lot of topics. Thank you for playing three questions with me. I appreciate that. I appreciate learning more about you and the awesome things that you're doing. You really, um, you know, I, I know you've, you've got my great respect. I know I speak for my whole team and and, and many others that really appreciate and value what you do. I didn't have a chance to ask. I was going to really get a chance to ask, but if you have a chance to go onto Gary's uh, Twitter feed, there was a funny, uh, I mean, I thought it was funny, but you were talking about uh, your Garbot challenges earlier today. <laughs> so, so we don't have time to get into that, but do you want to share real quickly what you were looking at? So this is like the fourth time this has happened. I get a bunch <laughs> of new followers on my Twitter account and they are all following eight to 10 other people and <laughs> All of the people they follow have the letters G-A-R in their Twitter username or their Twitter handle. And this has to be part of a larger bot that just monitors everything. I'm assuming there's a, there's a you know, every, every three-letter combination might have a bot assigned to them, yeah. but they get blocked and reported to Twitter if they follow me. But I just... It's driving me nuts. I don't know why they're following me, but it, it'll be usually a group of six to 10 accounts starts following me. And when I look at who else are they following, it's random people who have gear in their name all around the world. And it's so if you're yeah. out there, Garbot mastermind, Gary's on to you and he's looking for you. So, and, and I'd love to Gary. learn how you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so, so much, Andy. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you. Want to send us out with any final thoughts or anything you want to share before we go? No, I, I just, I just love the opportunity to talk about, you know, the work that we're doing, encouraging the next generation of students. We're always looking for ways that we could give those students opportunity to work with maybe some of the companies that are listening today. So, if that's something that you'd love to have some extra intelligence analysts on your team, uh, come talk to us. We'd love to, we'd love to work that out. Yeah. Yeah. A great resource, tremendous capabilities. Awesome. Young minds, awesome seasoned veteran minds, great capabilities all around. Gary, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. And I hope that those listening have as well. For those listening, thanks for being a part of our Gay 15 community. This Gay 15 interview is my monthly interview with fantastic guests like Gary. I, I really so delighted that we got a chance to speak today. Please check out our other Gay 15 podcast available on the same channel that you're hearing this interview mentioned earlier. That's our Risk Roundtable, our monthly discussion, often with me, Jen Walker, and Dave Pound. We talk about the various all hazards, threats, and risks facing the United States and other parts around the world. Jen, cybersecurity evangelist, she had a great talk this month with the folks at HISAC, a great team, some great discussion there. And Dave Pounder's nerd out security panel discussion with a really all-star group 
talking about physical security threats, including terrorism, extremism, and other hostile events. So please subscribe and listen, share your ideas and other feedback. Reach out to us on Twitter, check out Gary on Twitter, check out his and Jen uh, Easterly's LinkedIn. We'll include both of those in the show notes as well. You can reach out to us anytime. So thanks for listening. And until next time, live free and try to be at least somewhat reasonably safe. Thanks so much. Thanks, Gary. (laughs) 